The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. Well, let's look one more time in the book of Acts and kind of review it. Before we do, let's pray together. God, thank you for this book that fits into this greater book and the greater story that you are telling in the world that Jesus Christ has come. He's died He's risen from the dead, and He is Lord of all. So when brokenness abounds in our cultures and other cultures, when there are war, disease, sinfulness, pain, heartache, and dysfunction, Jesus is Lord, and He will set all things right. And just as we've looked at how you use your people to offer redemption, life, and hope in the first century, You would call us as your people to be your church that the gates of hell will not prevail against, offering life and hope and redemption in Jesus Christ. So pray you'd be with us and that you would teach us about the roots of this story, the relevance of this story, and then ramifications for us because of this story. In Jesus' name, amen. There there are certain things you hear that if you hear them... If you hear them, they bring something else to mind. So if you think about really classic and moving movies, Star Wars might come to mind. Somebody laughed at that. If you hear Luke, I am your father, you're going to think if you've seen Star Wars of Vader letting Luke know he's his father. If you hear, you can't handle the truth. You might think of this great character Jack Nicholson played, Nathan Jessup, and a few good men. You hear something and it makes you think of the greater story. If you read C.S. Lewis and you hear this opening line, there was a boy called Eustace Clarence Scrub and he almost deserved it. It's the beginning of the voyage of the Dawn Treader. If you read classics like I do and you hear, I do not like green eggs and ham, you think of Dr. Seuss. When we think of the book of Acts, I wonder what comes to our minds because it's lots of things, but ultimately it's a story and even more, it's part of a story. Now, don't get me wrong, it's historical nonfiction inspired by God, but it's a historical nonfiction inspired by God story that fits in a greater story. And that's important for us to know. When we talk about the scripture, we often say, It was 66 books written over 1,500 years on three continents by 40 authors. We say that so that we'll be amazed at the unity of the Bible, and it's true. But often when it comes to looking at one book or another book of the Bible, we really treat them like they're 66 books. Now let me help you. This is 66 books. This is one book. This is a book about Texas. If you... Hadn't read Texas by James Mishner? Go out and read that. This is a book about confession. There's a book about pain and suffering. There's a book about prayer. There's a book about knowing God. There are books about Jesus, books about Paul, books about the dynamics of the spiritual life. 66 books. Now, there are a lot of letters in here and a few small books, but these books, though they, they do tell some similar things, they're not telling one story. These books that fit into this book, It's one story. It's a unified story. We've got to 
remember that. If you don't, the book of Acts might seem a little strange. In fact, it might present a Christianity you're not really comfortable with. The roots of this story matter. The fact that it's one book, not 66 books, matters. Well, why do the roots matter? Because the roots impact the relevance of the story and the roots impact the ramifications of the story. See, if, if you thought, well, if your name was Ebenezer and you were in a story written by a guy named Charles, but you thought your name was Hamlet, and you thought you were in a story written by William, you might be disappointed when you found out the truth. See, the, the reality is, is that we might be thinking to ourselves, I'm living out the Christian story. I'm carrying out the Christian story. I'm living out what it means to be part of the church of God. But our lives look sorely different from the lives of those in the book of Acts. Our lives might actually be filled with idolatry, Filled with pursuits of things that are really just about us, not about God and His kingdom. My wife and daughter were with a group that was in New York City this week ministering. Our group from New York's back, group from Ukraine got back a week and a half ago, group from Rwanda's back, group in Japan is still there serving. But Maddie was telling me a little bit about her trip, and part of their trip, they were doing a prayer walk in a neighborhood that was mainly Indian and Bengali people, many Hindus in the neighborhood, so they were praying that these idols in their lives would fall, that they would know Jesus as Lord. And in one of the shops they went into, Maddie began to see these little G gods that people worship, these little metal idols that they worship. And when she was going out of the shop, she said, I just began to, to weep at the lostness. My heart was broken, Dad, because here are people who don't know Jesus and they're worshiping something that can't satisfy them. And can't save them. See, it's easy for us to see an idol like that and say, oh, that's an idol. But when we even begin to talk about things like consumerism, it's so subtle. It's, it's part of our everyday life. And we think, well, I'm sure there are people, I'm sure there are people that really struggle with consumerism, but I mean, I don't. That's not really an idle for me, but it's so subtle and it's so easy for us when the reality is that when we look at the book of Acts and the suffering and the scattering and the mission, that's so foreign to our lives. How do I know if I'm struggling with consumerism? How do I know that? Am, am I more consumed if I'm a lady with what my curves and my clothes look like? If I'm a man with what my truck and my tan look like? Do I spend more time reading my retirement plan than reading the Word? Do I spend more time looking at my bank account than loving my brothers? What's the story that we're really living in? Is it primarily about you and how you can just kind of bring God along to further your cause? He can give you success in business. He can give you success in relationships. He can give you this. He's become a means to your end or are you living out this story, really, of the church on mission with God? You, you might be like one friend Russell Moore tells about in his book, Onward. He had an atheist friend in college. They're in college in Mississippi in the early 90s, and they would meet together and drink coffee. And after about two years, his atheist friend comes to him and says, Hey, I, I need a great church to go, Southern Baptist one. 
not too radical or anything, but just a good church. And Russell Moore said, I was so excited. I thought, praise God, I've given some great argument, and he's come to faith in Jesus. And he said, I just said, man, when did you become a Christian? He, he goes, oh, I'm, I'm not a Christian. I'm going into politics. We live in Mississippi in the 1990s. You, you can't be an atheist and be a politician in Mississippi. I just need a good church to go to, Russ. And Russell Moore says, I was stunned in the momentary silence. My friend said again, seriously, nothing freaky. If anybody starts screaming about hell or putting a snake out of a box, I'm gone. He said, my atheist friend was unusually honest, but I don't think he was honestly all that unusual. Atheism, he realized, isn't just about what one believes or doesn't believe. It's a tribal marker. One that made him something of an exile in the culture of the Christ-haunted South. He was willing to strike a deal with an innocuous form of Christianity in order to get what he wanted out of real life. Church membership would protect him from cultural marginalization, which to him was scarier than hell. Finding Jesus was his way of asking America into his heart as his personal Lord and Savior. He was one of many of those who recognized that to be good citizens, to be good neighbors, to be at home in America, one needed to be a Christian. Now, this Christianity didn't require one to carry a cross, but just to say a prayer and to agree to certain values and norms. See, I wonder if some of us have bought into that sort of Christianity. No cross, just make me a good citizen. Protect me from marginalization. I just want a place to fit in. I want Jesus to give me what I want. And if that's your story, friends, that's not the Christian story. That's not the Christian story. But this story, the book of Acts, tells the story of Jesus as Christ and King. And the roots of this story are firmly biblical that matters for our relevance. Acts 1.8, really, the story starts out like this. And so he tells his disciples, the risen Christ, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now, here's the reality. Of course, it's a biblical story, Chase. It's in the Bible. I know you're from Texas, so I wanted to make sure we made that clear, okay? So here's the thing. Right, it's a biblical story in that it's in the Bible, but what we mean is that the book of Acts fits in this theme that is carried throughout the Scripture. Genesis 1, 28. And this is not working for me, so I'm going to just get you to click these slides. Genesis 1, 28. God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on earth. God is saying to Adam and Eve, when he says fill the earth, he wants to fill the earth with his glory or with his image. They are to reflect his image over all the earth. Now let's go back to Acts 1.8. So Luke says, You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you shall be my witnesses. Now hear me, I don't think Luke was thinking about Genesis 1 when he wrote Acts 1.8. But it's the same idea. God's glory, God's image, a reflection of His image is to be spread over all the earth. And now, as new creation in Christ, we do that when we share the gospel, when we are His witnesses. 
See, he said it in Genesis 1. He said it in Genesis 9 after the flood to Noah. Fill the earth, subdue it. He said it in Genesis 11 when he scattered them. In Deuteronomy, when he gave the law, he said, the nations will see your wisdom and they will know my glory. He said to Pharaoh, I've raised you up for this purpose that my glory might be spread over all the earth. So in Acts 1.8, in Acts 1.8, when he says, you shall be my witnesses, it's a theme that's not just in this book. It runs throughout the scripture. It runs throughout the scripture. In Acts 8.34, we'll look at that next. There's this Ethiopian eunuch that Philip the evangelist has interaction with. And it says, a eunuch says to Philip, about whom I ask, does the prophet say this about himself or someone else? He's been reading Isaiah. And Philip opened his mouth and beginning with the scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. This is a thoroughly biblical story and it's a theme that runs throughout the scripture. It's not just a biblical story. It's a story with this great Jewish background. It's an intensely Jewish story. You could read through the book of Acts and not know that. But we need to know that because the roots matter because of what God is doing in human history. In Acts 2, 17 through 21, when the Spirit comes, Luke says this, this came to fulfill what what was prophesied through the mouth of Joel. In the last days, it shall be, God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your young men shall see visions. Your sons and daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, did you see that? We started in Acts 2. We went to Joel 2. But it's the same thing. It's this Jewish story. It's this Jewish story in Acts 4, 11 and 12. When Peter and John are before the council, they say this Jesus is a stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. Now, they're not just talking to the Pharisees then, right then and there. They're fulfilling a prophecy. Psalm 118, 22 and 23 says this, The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It's marvelous in your eyes. In Isaiah 28, 16, it says, Therefore, thus says the Lord, I am the one who has laid a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not make haste. So Acts 4, 11 and 12 again. This is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven whereby we must be saved. See, for thousands of years, Israel waited for the Messiah. And just like Luke's telling his friend Theophilus, this book is telling the Jews, Messiah has come. It's a Jewish story. It's such a Jewish story that Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, according to Acts 9.15 is also the apostle who always goes to the Jews first. He always goes to the Jews first. In Acts 13.5, he's in Cyprus after he's commissioned. He goes to the synagogue and shares the gospel. In Acts 13.14, in Antioch and Pisidia, he goes to the synagogue and shares the gospel. In Acts 14.1, in Iconium, he goes to the synagogue and shares the gospel. In Acts 17.1 and 2, he goes to the synagogue and shares the gospel. And what happens is that some will believe, many reject him, he's stoned, 
He's beaten. He's kicked out of cities and left for dead. And so he begins to take the gospel to the Gentiles. But in Berea, where they were more noble than in Thessalonica, in 1710, he goes to the synagogue. In Corinth, in Acts 18, 4 and 5, Paul goes to the synagogue. In Ephesus, he goes to the synagogue. And then in Acts 22, he goes back to Jerusalem to share again. Why does this matter? Why does this matter? Because we've got to remember the story that we're part of. If we don't, we'll forget what Christianity is about and we'll think it's about us. We'll put ourselves at the center of the story. It's a biblical Jewish story. It becomes a multinational story. See, we've got to be careful. We've got to be careful because some of us are frustrated and don't really know what to do with things that are happening in culture. And the, really, the reality is, is, is that for some of us, we've lost sight of the gospel. And we've made Christianity into just an American religion. We've lost sight of the gospel. See, this isn't an American story or an Anglo story or an Italian story or an African story. Acts is the story of the church. God's people gathering and being gathered from the ends of the earth. And that's good news. That's good news because that is a relevant story. That is a relevant story. See, the gospel is relevant in every time, in every culture, in every season. Every generation makes all kinds of efforts to make the gospel relevant. We've even got a magazine called Relevant Magazine that is about Christianity and culture. And listen, contextualization matters. Paul spoke differently in Athens than he did in Jerusalem. He spoke different in Lystra than he did in Ephesus. But the gospel, the gospel is relevant in every time, every culture, and every season. Every culture that this book talks about, and it talks about several cultures. The gospel was relevant. It was relevant to devout men from every nation under heaven in Acts chapter 2. It was relevant to those who saw they had all things in common when the church began to grow. It was relevant to the beggar in Acts 3 who took up his bed and walked. And make no mistake about it, to the council who told Peter and John to stop preaching the offense of this gospel was relevant in Acts chapter 4. In Acts chapter 6, it's relevant to the widows. In Acts chapter 7, it's relevant again to the Sanhedrin when they stone Stephen because they understand what what he's saying about Jesus. In Acts 8, it's relevant to Simon the magician. It's relevant to this Ethiopian eunuch. It's relevant to Saul. In Acts 9, who's a Jew of Jews, it's relevant to Cornelius, a Gentile. In Acts 10, it's relevant in Antioch. In Acts 11, it's relevant to James when he gives his life for the gospel. In Acts 12, and it's relevant to those who see Herod die and his body eaten by worms at the end of that chapter. See, in Acts 13, it's relevant in Cyprus. It's relevant in Iconium and Lystra and Derbe and Syria and back in Jerusalem. It's relevant in Philippi. It's relevant in Thessalonica. It's relevant in Athens and Corinth and Ephesus and every corner of Greece. It's relevant to young slave girls and prominent women. To officers in Philippi and elders in Ephesus. To governors, to kings, to paupers. It's relevant in Rome. And when you look at an empire where the rulers do not know God and where people worship their right to choose whatever they want and emptiness abounds, it's a relevant gospel. 
And it doesn't matter if you're talking about the first century in Asia and Europe or the 21st century in the good old U.S. of A. When you look at a place where rulers don't know God and where people worship their right to choose whatever they want, where emptiness abounds, where the power for life and peace and justice and sacrificial love are rarely seen, the kingdom of God under the rule and reign of Jesus Christ A community of people who love one another sacrificially, who are on mission together, pursuing a goal larger than themselves. It's relevant. I was talking to a friend named Randy Thursday. He's a church planner in Austin. A few weeks ago, he and his family were eating at Kirby Lane Cafe. They were having brunch after their worship gathering. And their waiter came up to him and said, you guys have a great family. And Randy's wife said, well, thanks, man. You ought to come be part of our family. He just said, listen, that's, that's not funny, lady. I, I don't have a family. I don't have a family. I'm 27 years old. I've moved 40 times. I've had 20 jobs. I've been in and out of foster homes. I don't have a family. So that's, that's not funny. And Jill, Randy's wife, said, well, I, I wasn't joking. You can be part of our family. We've got lots of people we're not related to who are part of our family. We'd love for you to come be part of our family. And the guy said, well, when's the next holiday? Thanksgiving, I'll see you in six months. She said, no, no, we're going to a birthday party next weekend, and we'd, we'd love for you to come. We're going to barbecue for Randy's dad's birthday. You're, you're welcome to come. And he said, I don't have a car. They said, we'll pick you up. He said, could I bring some corn to roast? They said, sure. So they take him to this birthday party. He has a great time with their family. They're driving him home. Randy's setting up a time to help the guy move because, again, he doesn't have a car. And they said, when are you going to hang out with us again next? He said, oh, I'd love to. And they said, well, we get together with friends about once a week. We, we have a meal. We talk. Sometimes we read the Bible together. He goes, oh, you, you guys are Christians. You won't want me as part of your group. I'm an atheist. Randy said, we don't care. I said, what do you mean you don't care? And Randy said, well, I mean... I mean, we care, we'd love for you to know Christ. Though we don't care if you ever believe in a sense. We so want you to. We want you to know the hope that we have. But we love you. You're welcome where we are. And we're going to love you whether you ever embrace this gospel or not. The guy stood there, tears welling up in his eyes, and said, yeah, I think I'll come. See, the kingdom of God and a community of people on mission for God. It's a relevant thing. It's a relevant thing in every time, every season, every culture. It's relevant to the people you live next to. It's relevant to the people you work next to. It's relevant to the people you argue with on Facebook. Who, by the way, when you do, I bet are just going, Oh man, I'd love to know that Jesus. It's a relevant gospel. It's a relevant gospel. And that matters. That matters. See, the book has roots. The book has relevance. And because it does, there's some ramifications for us. So we're going to close our time today by looking at three maybe lesser seen ramifications that the book of Acts shows us. And then three that are just plain and clear. So first is this, the gospel is for the Jew first and then for the Gentile, that we might become one new person, the church unified in Christ. That matters. That matters. Romans 1.16, Paul said it like this, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. 
It's the power of God and salvation for the Jew first and also to the Greek. Why does that matter? It matters because Jews and Gentiles in the first century hated one another. And God is saying, I'm making one new man and I'm expressing a unity through my people that's so uncommon that the world can't ignore it. In Ephesians 2, Paul said it like this, Therefore remember that one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, or you were called the uncircumcision by the Jews. Remember, you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who are far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broke down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of two, making peace and that he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you're fellow citizens with the saints. Members of the household of God. Built on the foundations of the apostles and the prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. He's saying there's this foundation. It's one book, not 66 books. One book. And it's the foundation of your unity in Christ. It's a big and important ramification. And the story is told how it is so that we won't seek our identity primarily along national lines or tribal lines, but as brothers and sisters unified in Christ. Unified in Christ. Second ramification that's less seen in Acts is this that the church is a people who care for women. The church is a people who care about women. You can see it in Acts one fourteen when Luke mentions on purpose that it's the women who are praying with the apostles. You can see it in Acts 6 when these widows are cared for. You can see it in Acts 9 when Tabitha is raised from the dead. And in Acts 16 when this slave girl is freed from her demon. And Lydia, this prominent woman, are mentioned as part of the church there in Philippi that would grow. In Acts 17.4, it says not a few of the prominent women came. In Acts 18, Priscilla is named as a co-laborer in the gospel. See, in the first century, women were often degraded. They were looked down upon, seen as lesser. In a culture that degrades women, the gospel ought to be good news. Our culture exploits the bodies of women, traffics women, tricks women into believing that choice is the ultimate good and leaves a wake of depression and pain and heartache behind. See, there's, there's good news and there's a different way. The church ought to be a refuge for thousands upon thousands of women deceived by the abortion industry. The church ought to be an empowering community for single mothers in every demographic of our society. See, ladies, our culture, our culture tricks you 
into thinking that you're defined by how you look and what you wear. And it tricks you into embracing the idol of your own body that some of you have even carved that idol into your own skin. Gone and had surgery to make yourself look a certain way. You stand in the, the mirror and kind of primp and pose. You can understand. I stopped doing that a while ago. I'm not going to find my identity here, right? See, the scripture and the gospel redefines what it means for you to be a woman. Instead of embracing charm that's deceitful and beauty that's vain, a woman who fears the Lord's to be praised. You can be known as a child of the king and your significance comes from that, that you're part of God's people. See, the gospel and gospel people care about women. And third, the first century Roman world was a world of imposition and the church in the book of Acts offered this proposition of what life could look like when Jesus is Lord. The powers that be would impose all kinds of burdens on us. And gospel people ought to be living and loving and speaking a proposition of hope in Jesus Christ. When Far too often we see culture, we don't like culture, and we just start complaining about our mission field like God is sovereign over everything except the fact that He put us here and now. He put us here in this place and now in this time that we would seek Him and express His love to this place and these people. Those are three lesser known ramifications of the book of Acts. Now there are three, they're just... Very, very plain. The first is this. God's people, the church, are a surrendered people in true community with one another and on mission together. This matters. This matters. This is what it means to be one of God's people. We are the church, a surrendered people in community together, or in community with one another and on mission together. You might see that and say, well, I'm not sure that really that's me because kind of what Christianity means to me is this. And, and what I want you to hear is that it doesn't matter what Christianity means to you. It matters what the Scripture says Christianity is. I'll give you a great example of this from the soup that I swim in, and that's the missions world. People want to go on trips sometimes or want to come back on trips, and they go on these trips and come back on these trips, and they say, I know God wanted me to be there because I just had such a great time, and it felt so good, and it was so wonderful. And I want you to hear, I'm not opposed to just about anybody having a good time. In fact, if you're most people in the room, I want you to have a good time all the time. I'm for that. Now, if you're from Oklahoma and you go to the state fair in October, there's a Saturday every year that I hope's awful for you. Worst day of your life, right? Other than that, I want you to have a good time. But here's what I want you to hear. When we take the mission of God, I know God wanted me to do this. It just felt So right. Do do you understand how foreign that is and far removed that is to the mission God called Isaiah to, he called Jeremiah to, to Paul when he's there in bonds at midnight in that prison in Philippi singing praises and hymns to God, to James when he's giving his life for his faith, to Peter when he's threatened and thrown in prison And demanded, don't preach the gospel again. I hear Craig Landrum testify. And I see my brother Celestin. Who's been beaten for his faith. 
And I, I just think they're, they're probably not walking through these hard situations. When, man, this feels so good. This must be God's will for me. No, there's a king who died and rose from the dead. And he defines what Christianity is. And he's the one who said, there's this rock on which I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. See, Jesus said, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. It may not always feel great. But we don't define what Christianity or the mission of Christianity is. The scripture has to do that. That's why this story in the midst of this greater story matters so much. Ramification number two. The gospel community engages culture well through demonstration of love and declaration of truth. These two concepts aren't enemies. We've got some folks that just want to preach the gospel and care nothing about justice. There are others who want to do acts of justice, but they're ashamed to preach the gospel. Justice and the doctrine of justification are not enemies. They're friends. So we engage culture well through demonstration of love and declaration of truth. And we do that whether cultural tides are for us or against us. See, the apostles in Acts did not hope in their political power because they had none. And neither should we. That's not to say we don't vote. That's not to say we don't leverage our lives for good and our culture. But the reality is some of us hope in being a moral majority instead of recognizing ourselves as a gospel community. And while we've often rejected the personal prosperity gospel, some of us have embraced a national prosperity gospel. That's a dangerous thing to do. Russell Moore says this, the worst place you could be in the Roman Empire was crucified outside Jerusalem. But the Roman Empire is dead and Jesus Christ is alive and feeling fine. Some of you see events in culture and you think there's no hope for the church. Moore goes on to say this, The future of the church is incandescently bright. Not because of promises made at Independence Hall, but a promise made at Caesarea Philippi. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He's alive and well and all of history is moving toward his ultimate eternal reign as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. See, there are ramifications to this story. And the third is this. First is God's people, the church, are surrendered people in community with one another and on mission together. The second is that the gospel community engages the culture well through demonstrations of love and declarations of truth. And third is this. The mission of the church is far from over. The mission of the church is far from over. So as long as there are nations where the name of Jesus isn't known, and as long as you have neighbors that don't know Christ, he says, you shall be my witnesses. This is an unfinished story. So some questions. How long has it been since you built a relationship with someone who doesn't know Christ and share the good news about Jesus with them? Have you ever shared with anybody that you believe Jesus has risen from the dead? How long has it been since you invited someone to a small group? How long has it been since you've been to a small group? How long has it been since you've said to a neighbor, hey, we'd love for you to come Sunday, go to church with us, we'll buy lunch. 
Are you treating your coworkers in such a way that they would want to know Jesus if you shared him? See, the story's not yet finished, but the question is, what's the story you're living in? I love the movie Blindside, where it tells the story of the Tui family that adopted Michael Ower, this young man, into their family who was pretty good at football and he was being recruited by lots of schools in the SEC and he was going to end up going to Mississippi, but the NCAA investigated and they were wondering, was his family pushing him? Were they pushing him to go and, and be part of this school? And he went away from that investigation nervous, but then he came back and he said, listen, I want to go to the University of Mississippi because I want to follow the traditions that my family is about and I want to do the things that my family does. He had a new family. He was part of a new story and he wanted to live his life accordingly. It's the uniform he wanted to be identified with. See, what's the story you're living in? Is it a story about your personal prosperity? Or when people look at your life, would they say like they said of Paul at the end of Acts? He lived there proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus with all boldness and without hindrance. It's an unfinished story. We're a church with an unfinished mission. So this week, be about living the story that you're really part of if you're in Christ. Father, we thank you for your great love for us. And God, we know that we are a people surrendered to you in community and on mission together. God, we know that you've called us to be salt and light, to declare your truth, to demonstrate your love in the midst of a broken, wandering people who lack purpose and who lack forgiveness and who lack hope. Our mission is far from over, God. So as we close out this book, let us be the sort of people who make certain the story continues as we share the love and truth of Jesus Christ with our neighbors and among the nations this week. In Jesus' name, amen. And you're dismissed.